just going to read a part of the crucifixion story. For the last three weeks, we've been following Jesus' final week, sort of a week in the life of Jesus. We looked at the first Palm Sunday, so I've already preached on Palm Sunday three weeks ago because we're going through this chronologically. There was Palm Sunday, and then Jesus initiated the first Lord's Supper shortly after that, and we spoke on that a couple of weeks ago. And then after that first Lord's Supper, Peter denied Christ, and we talked about that last week. So on this road towards Easter, today we're going to talk about what we know as Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus. Good for us, tough for him. Very tough. Now, let's, let's read these passages. Matthew 27, starting at verse uh, 22. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said to him something very, very, very bad. His blood be on us and on our children. When they said that, they spoke a curse on themselves. They really did. Now, after saying that, he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged or flogged or whipped Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they thrust it on his head and a reed in his right hand. All of this is mockery, a reed representing the scepter that a king would have. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, took the reed out of his hand, and struck him on the head with, if you can imagine, striking Jesus on the head with a stick. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, who was a black man. Did you know that? He's a dark-skinned man. Can't say African-American because he wasn't American. <laughs> but he was black. And I want you to notice how God chose a black man to help him carry his cross. That's an honor. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Lord, we come to you with the story of the cross, this historic event. And I pray that today the reality of the cross will come home to us like never before that we will see what Jesus did for us with crystal clarity. Holy Spirit, great teacher of the church, open our eyes, open our ears to see and hear 
what the Christ did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them there's power in the cross. Now we're talking about the cross today. The crucifixion of Jesus stands as the epicenter event in the history of the world. There's no more important event than the crucifixion of Christ. Now, yes, we had his birth, Christmas, and we have next week his resurrection. But on the cross is where Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. If there were no cross, then we're not here today. We're off living in our sin. We are not filled with the Holy Spirit. We have no hope of heaven. We are still damned to a devil's hell. Without the cross, we don't know God. We're not walking in light. We're walking in the dark and we are doomed forever without the cross. All of the Old Testament prophets pointed to what we just read. Matter of fact, when you, when you read your Bible cover to cover, you realize that the Bible is not a book of 66 books. It's not a compilation of 66 books separate but it is one unified book that has 66 books in it. And it never contradicts. It doesn't disagree. And you see that when you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is all pointing to the New Testament and pointing to this hour where Jesus died for the sins of mankind. Take, for example, Isaiah the prophet. What an amazing prophet. Isaiah, looking through the prophetic lens saw the cross of Christ coming. And I want you to look at what he said. He said, surely, it's like he's watching a a movie. He's watching it in panoramic vision color. And he says, surely he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows. I see him on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement necessary for us to require and attain peace with God was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. David the psalmist, it's amazing. Not only was he the king of Israel, but David was a prophet. He prophesied in Psalms 22, and David is really experiencing Jesus speaking through him in the first person. Notice, my enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. He's talking about the Romans and the Jews, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the Romans who are all there for his crucifixion. Uh, uh, Jesus, speaking through David, describes them like a herd of bulls, like lions. They open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water. My bones are out of joint from hanging on the cross. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. Jesus knew what it was like to have a violent gang attack him. They have pierced. Do you hear this? They have pierced my hands and my feet. 
The amazing thing about that statement is this was centuries before the cross was created. There was no uh, execution by the cross when David wrote this. It was yet to be. So with the prophetic eye, he sees Messiah having his hands and feet pierced. I can count all my bones because they're protruding. My enemies stare at me and they gloat. Look what they did. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. We know that's exactly what happened at the cross. They took Jesus' clothing, cast lots for it. Who's going to get it? Somebody walked away with his clothes. He was hung naked, bleeding, disfigured, beaten beyond recognition on the cross. And not only did the prophets point to this hour, but all the Old Testament sacrifices, thousands and thousands of lambs through the centuries that were sacrificed, for, for instance, on the Day of Atonement, when the priest would sacrifice that lamb for the sins of the people, thousands of times this happened, all the way back to the first animal that God himself slew to cover Adam and Eve's sin. All they were, all those lambs, all those sacrifices were types and shadows and signposts pointing down the road of time to when Jesus would stretch out his hands and feet and God's own sacrifice lamb would once for all give his life for you and for me. The Old Testament. The Old Testament looked forward to Jesus' crucifixion. The New Testament looks back on Jesus' crucifixion. The Old Testament anticipates the crucifixion, and the New Testament celebrates the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and what it did for us. Now, when, when I look at something as gruesome as the cross, and I've, I've heard atheists and I've heard some agnostics uh, bring this up. You know, your God is a, is a bloody God. That is, Jesus hanging on a tree. Are you going to tell me that a God of love would hang his own son on a cross like that and let him go through that kind of torment? That doesn't seem like a, a just or a good or a loving God to me. How could God let that happen to, to who you tell me is his only son? How could that be? Well, you have to understand the severity of the problem to really grasp the severity of the remedy. To understand why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because when I read these things, folks, when I read about the way he was beaten and abused and mocked and ridiculed and defamed and ostracized and, and treated, it hurts every time. I, I wince. I, 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 it's, it's hard to get through it. My Savior treated like he was. You got to understand the severity of the problem. You see, we got a problem. In America and in the world, there's a problem. And you know what? The problem is not drugs, pornography, prostitution, murder, pillage, terrorism. The problem is deeper. The Bible says the problem is S I N, it's a sin problem. We, we have the, the human race has a deadly terminal disease. Now, that, that's not to mean that we're icky or, you know, uh, unloving or uh, unlovable. It's, I'm not running us down as people, but as people, we have a problem, and we have a, a spiritual disease, and it's called sin. Listen to what the Bible says about the human race. And I wish that I could be on ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, CNN, and Fox and say this. 
Because, you know, uh, politics isn't going to fix this. You know, a, a new budget is not going to fix this. Getting a hold of our financial crisis in America is not what is really going to... We need to go to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is a sin problem. Listen to what the Bible says. There's none righteous. No, not one. Talking about the human race. There is none righteous, not a solitary one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. I underlined all the nuns, no ones. Listen to this. None, no one, none, none, all, everybody, none, not one. That means there's not a solitary person among men, not a solitary person that has ever been born since Adam who could get into heaven based on their own merit. There is not a single person who can say, I've never sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every last one of us. And so Jesus didn't come to say nice things and tiptoe through the tulips of sweet philosophy and just love on everybody and can't we all just get along? Jesus came as the remedy for a sickness, and the sickness is sin. It's sin. You know, I'm amazed, and and here's what's really sad. There's a lot of pulpits that don't preach this anymore. And, you know, they say if there's, a, if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pews. That is, if, you, if it's kind of unclear up here, it's real unclear out there. And do you know that as the pulpit goes, so goes the nation? I had a man after the first service tell me. This man told me. He leads worship. This man told me that one time he was in a, ministering worship in a church, and he sang some songs about the blood of Jesus. And, the, and the, the pastor took him aside after the first service and said, Look, we don't sing about a bloody Jesus. And I said, Did you stay? Because, folks, we owe our lives to a bloody Jesus. We owe our souls to a bloody Jesus. We've got to get back to the root of the problem. The root of the problem, we have a sin problem. And there is a solution, and there's only one solution, and it's the cross of Christ. That's the solution. You find your identity there. You find your destiny there. You find your hope there, your future there, your forgiveness there, a clear conscience there. You can sleep better at night once you've been to the cross of Christ. Jesus is the only man in all of history who was born to die for us. He, he took the judgment that was due us and he erased the charges that were against us. You see, we're all guilty before God. We all have a sin debt to God. That's the message of the Bible. So I'm going to take a couple of those things, a couple of those points. First one, let's understand what Jesus did on the cross, why he had to die there, why he had to go through that on the cross. Here's the first thing, because on the cross, Jesus took our judgment. Jesus was judged in our place. 
He took our judgment. I read, I read some time ago, and I've shared this before, but it, it's so good. I'm going to share it again. In the, in the days of the pioneers, when they were going into new territory, especially in the West, where there was all kinds of uh, long, ex, long expanses of acreage covered in dead grass and dead weeds and, and, and just uh, dead vegetation, that if it started on fire, a prairie fire resulted... And if you got stuck in a prairie fire, you know, you're going across that prairie in your stagecoach with your children and your wife and, and, and your animals and all that you own, and all of a sudden you see the terrifying smoke of a prairie fire, and it's coming your way, and the breeze is blowing it your way, they learned a secret. They, they, they learned to start the fire around themselves where they're in front of it and it goes behind them and they burned what was behind them and then they stepped back where the fire had already burned so that when the prairie fire got to them, there was nothing to burn. In other words, the safe place is where the fire had already fallen. Because where the fire had already been, you can't get burned. Can I tell you something about Jesus on the cross, he took our judgment. God judged him for your sins and mine. Therefore, the fire of God's wrath fell on the cross. So that if you want to avoid the fire of judgment, the fire of God's wrath, the great judgment day that is coming, you can't run hither, thither, and yon. You can't run wherever you want to. You go where the fire has already fallen. And it's already fallen on the cross. So, Jeff, I don't like it when you talk about a judgmental God. That's not a God of love. Yes, it is. Because let me tell you something about our God. Our God is a just God. He's a righteous God. He is a holy God. So you know what that means? That means he's a moral God. So what do you mean by that? I mean that because he's righteous, he created moral beings. Because God's righteous, that means to God, there's right and wrong, there's good and bad, there's light and dark, there's righteousness and unrighteousness, there's obedience and there's disobedience. You can do the right thing, you can do the wrong thing. And Adam and Eve learned that early on in the garden where there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God said, you can have everything except that. Don't touch that. What was God saying? There is a wrong in this world. There's, you can do wrong. Adam and Eve, don't do wrong. You can have everything but that, and I don't want you to touch that. And what did Adam and Eve do? They forthwith went right to that tree. And Eve ate first and gave it to her husband. And they ate of it and they did wrong. And guess what happened? There were consequences immediately. That's the message of the Bible. That if, there's, if there is a sin, there is a consequence. And the consequence is anytime. Sin happens in God's universe. It must be judged. There can no more be a sin without a consequence. Then you could drop a rock into a pond and not have ripples go out from that rock all the way to the shore. In other words, there is immediately a ripple effect, immediately a consequence of that rock hitting the pond. It's the same thing when you and I sin there's an immediate consequence, and either we will pay for that sin or somebody will pay for it for us. 
And you know why we understand this so easily? Because God being immoral, God created moral beings. Now, Kathy and I watch forensic files a lot. I'll be honest with you. There's not a forensic file I haven't seen. I record them. You say, well, what's that? Well, you need to go find it because it's really a good show. It's just, it shows me the way God brings wrong to justice. And so you'll have people that'll, that'll, you know, kill someone. It's usually a murder. And 20 years later, they'll find them based on forensic evidence. But, you know, sometimes you'll see on these shows, somebody will finally go to court for what they did, and they'll get some minuscule, piddly squat uh, sentence. And you know the first thing you say? That's a miscarriage of justice. Now, why do you say that? Because God put in you and me a conscience. He made us in his image. My dog doesn't say that's a miscarriage of justice. We say it because we have a conscience. And we, having a conscience, know that when wrong is done, there should be an equivalent sentence. We know that, don't we? We know that, don't we? And so we we, we see somebody seemingly get away with murder and we go, that's not right, that's wrong. Why do we say that? Why? Why do we say it? Because God put in us a conscience. And so we understand wrong, there, it's going to have to be judged, and there's going to have to be justice meted out. So let's walk this out now. What did God say about you and me? There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all turned aside. We've all gone our own way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who seeks after God, not one person. So what are we saying? We as a human race have done wrong. So who's going to pay and how is justice going to be divvied out? Because watch this. If I'm God... And I'm looking at, I love the human race, and I want them back in fellowship with me. I have a dilemma because I want to have mercy on them, but I also must have justice because they've done wrong. So there must be justice, but I also want to have mercy on them. How can I do it? What will I do to get them back into my good graces and back into fellowship with me? Because if I divvy out the justice that I must divvy out, they're all going to perish. But I want to have mercy. So you know what happens at the cross? At the cross, mercy kisses justice. Let me show you how. If I want to have mercy on the human race, only one way that I can do it, and also divvy out the justice that I can't escape because I'm righteous, I look for a scapegoat. I must have a scapegoat. Now, you know what I found in the Old Testament? There was a day when God directed Moses to take Aaron, the priest, aside and say, Now, Aaron, I want you to get two goats. One of those goats I want you to sacrifice for the people. But the other goat, Aaron, I want you to lay your hands on that goat. And I want you to speak over that goat all the sins of the people. And then when you have spoken all the sins of the people over that goat, I want you to take him to the edge of camp 
And I want you to send him walking into the wilderness until he disappears. And Aaron, what that represents is that goat is taking the sins of the people away from them on himself, away from them. And that's where we get the word scapegoat. You know what Jesus was on the cross? He was our scapegoat. You know when it happened? It happened when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And all of a sudden, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the moment he dreaded in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the moment that made him sweat great drops of blood. This is the moment that he did not want to encounter. Because at that moment, just for a moment, God lifted his hand off of him. And God reached down instead of Aaron. God reached down and imputed to Jesus all the sins of the world. And he was judged for us. He took the rap for us. Everything you ever did, it was put on Jesus. Every lie, every adultery, every drug abuse, every sin was placed on him. And that's why Isaiah said, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And when Jesus died, he took our sins away. Isn't that something? One commentator writes about that event this way. It was not mere bodily anguish that elicited this cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It arose from some incalculable affliction of soul. He was bearing the sins of the whole world. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There was nobody to comfort him in his heaviness, and the light of God's countenance was for the time withdrawn from him that he might bear man's sins in their full and crushing weight. So Jesus bore the judgment. Jesus bore the judgment. Can you imagine standing at a judge's bench in a courtroom with some felonies on you and he's about to sentence you and all of a sudden somebody comes in and says, blame me and let them go. But the sentence was not a few years in prison. The sentence was forever in hell. And Jesus said, blame me. And then God even did more than that. God imputed our sins to him, and then he took his righteousness and imputed it to us. Isn't that amazing? So say with me, he bore my judgment, and he took the wrath. So if you want to get out from under God's wrath, run to where the fire is already burned. Now, amen. Can we just give God praise for the cross? Glory to God. Thank God for the cross. I like this next one. Another thing that happened on the cross is all the charges against us were dropped. You say, what charges, Jeff? There's no charges against me. Oh, yes, there were. As soon as you sinned, you were in debt to God, and you were a fugitive in God's universe. Now, we all know what Satan or the word devil means, diabolos, it means accuser. Picture somebody throwing rocks. That's the picture of the devil. But, but the rocks are accusations. He, he hurls accusations, not only to us in our minds. See, some of you had to fight to get to church today. 
And the reason you had to fight to get here is because you felt unworthy to come. Because the devil's been pounding you with condemnation, pounding you about some mistake you made, and saying, who are you to go to church? You're not worthy to go to church or to pray or to be in the Bible or even to call yourself a Christian. That's the devil. Now, he hurls accusations. And the Bible shows us at least twice Satan going in front of God and charging the human race with their sin. And you know what? He's right. He's right. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so he goes and he hurls accusations against us. Did you see that they did this? They did that. They went here. They went there. Did you see it, Lord? And these charges against us are what enables the devil to hold us in his grip and ultimately carry us into hell. But listen to the good news the Bible brings. We had charges against us, but watch this. Colossians 2.14 says, He, Jesus, erased the charges. Well, I could stop right there. He, Jesus, erased the charges that were brought against us along with their obligations that were hostile to us. He took those charges away when he nailed them to the cross. So on the cross, Jesus took the charges away. Now, I want you to imagine the devil. He's in front of God. There he is at the bar of God, and he's waving a long list of charges about you. Did you see that they this, they that, they did this, they did that, they went here, they went there, they thought this, said that. And he's waving these charges, and boy, it's serious, and it's true. But I want you to picture then Jesus the resurrected Jesus, our attorney, our advocate, who, by the way, works pro bono, <laughs> walking up, yanking the list of charges away from the devil, tearing them and ripping them in pieces, and he says, all charges dropped because of my shed blood. All charges dropped. Amen. That's exactly what happened. The minute that you said, see, it's only good for people who go to Jesus. I can know that the doctor has the shot that I need that's going to heal my disease, but I've got to go to the doctor. It doesn't do me any good to sit at home and say, well, I know he's got it. Well, I know he's got the medicine. I'm so glad he's got the medicine. No, you have to go to him. So... It's good only for those who go to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me that I sinned against you. Forgive me and I turn to you as the remedy for the sin problem in my life. And when we do, then this is good for us. Immediately, all charges are dropped. Amen. Amen. Now, the last thing, he made things right between us and God. He took our judgment, he erased the charges against us, and he made all things right between us and God. That is, he reconciled us to God. I love the message of the cross because the very cross itself, the shape of it, tells the story of Jesus. It's horizontal and it's vertical. Horizontal this way. Now, when I see the cross this way, here's what I see. I see God's arms outstretched. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you 
rest. That's what Jesus said. When he said, come unto me, can't you just picture him like this? It's not like this. He said, come unto me. And on the cross, God is saying, here's the shape of the cross. He's saying, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life because the moment that you believe those outstretched arms embrace you hear me on this the minute you say i receive you jesus the outstretched arms embrace you an embrace of love and the bible says the love of god is poured out into your hearts by the holy ghost given unto you but then it's also vertical see here's the way it works the horizontal comes first we run into his arms. And as soon as we do, the vertical comes into play. Jesus takes us back into fellowship with God above. He reconciles us. He takes your hand and God's hand and reconciles them. And you get taken back into fellowship with him. And that's the message of the cross. Come unto me and once you do, let me now take you back to the Father. Can we stand together today? And I want you to say with me, he took my judgment. He canceled the charges against me. And he's brought me back into relationship with God. Can we lift thankful hands to the Lord? Father, we just thank you today for the powerful cross of Christ. Thank you for the message of the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to suffer the wrath of God. Thank you, Lord God, that we don't have to walk around guilty because the charges have been dropped. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, that we've been reconciled to you. Now, with your head bowed, how many of you can think of somebody who doesn't know this, who hasn't experienced this? who, if they were to die today, you would know, suspect strongly at least, that they were lost. Can I see your hand? All right. I I want us to, just for a minute, get a burden. That these beautiful things we have gone over, the cross does for you. Our city is full of people that have never experienced this. And I want us to take a minute And I want us to pray that God this week is going to point somebody out to us. And we're going to go up to them. We're going to invite them to Easter Sunday. We should never get our eyes off the harvest field, folks. Somebody came to me. Somebody came to you. Now aren't we going to go to somebody else? In the first service, had a young man come down and give his heart to Christ. Last Easter, his dad was saved right here. And now it's spreading throughout the family. It's contagious. But it's a good contagion. So last Easter, his dad came down. And since his dad came down, then God's been moving in this family. And now his son came down the week before Easter. I believe the whole family is going to be saved. But isn't it great that his dad came down Easter? 
people need to be saved. So I want us to take a minute and go to the Lord with what we just heard. Father, we come to you with the power of the cross. Lord, we thank you for the powerful preaching of the cross. That without the preaching of the cross, there's nobody saved. How will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear without a witness? How will they hear unless somebody speaks up? Now, Lord, we know people who have no idea what it feels like to get out from under God's judgment, to know that they don't have to be guilty anymore and to be reconciled into real living relationship with God. Now, Lord, we come to you with, and I want you to fill in the blank. Let's lift our hands and say, Lord, I fill in the blank with this person. I'm going to name their name. A father, a son, a relative, a co-worker, a friend, a neighbor. And say, Lord, this week, grace me to say something, to invite them. In Jesus' name, to come to church. And Father, we bring these names to you, and God forbid that, Lord, we would not do it if the Holy Spirit is directing us to do it. And Lord, we believe that many, many people will be here Saturday night at 6 or Sunday morning at 9 or 11, and we will see miracle conversions to Jesus this Sunday and this Saturday night in Jesus' mighty name. Now, if you believe you heard that, give him a hand of praise and let's just believe God. Let's believe God.